Good morning, everyone. My name's Luke. I have the privilege of reading the Word this morning. Um, I've got two readings. So if we want to put our fingers in Romans chapter 12, and uh, if you find that, and then the, second, the first reading will actually be from Jeremiah chapter 2. All right, so Jeremiah chapter 2 first, and I'll start reading. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the firstfruits of his harvest. All who ate Eight of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord. What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? They did not say, Where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness? in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through where no man dwells. And I brought you into a, into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priests did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend. For the cross to the coasts of Cyprus and sea, sorry, for cross to the coasts of Cyprus and sea, or send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though there are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for, the, for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two, two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hooed out cisterns for, for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. All right, if we turn to Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Okay. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Aaron's ready. Awesome. Thanks, Luke. Thanks. All right. Good morning, everyone. Good to uh, have you here this morning. Uh, for those of you who might not know me, my name's Joel, and I am uh, one of the pastors here, which is a privilege and an honor, and um, 
very excited to be able to share God's word this morning. And it's um, something that's been on my heart for a little while. Some of you may have noticed over the last um, month or so, we've been um, gathering some feedback on our music team and ministry and um, what's happening there. Um, We've been talking as leaders about engagement with our teams and how do we um, be engaged in worship, and particularly in song and in church. And um, yeah, it's just been something that's I've been passionate about for a long time. You know, I've, my sort of initial introduction into like church ministry, I was the projector guy when I was 13 and I knew all the songs. I was like so excited and eventually got into team. And I just remember even like when I was in youth band, like, you know, always the focus from our leaders, which I'm so grateful for, is it was always about the heart. And I just got challenged and challenged and challenged. Like, it doesn't matter what you do on stage. It's all about the heart. Like, what are you doing in your bedroom Monday to Friday sort of thing? And um, I guess it's just been a constant thing in my life. And so um, I thought this morning would be, be cool. And it's just been on my heart to share a little bit about the heart of worship. And yes, we will sing the song. No prizes for guessing that um, at the end. Um, but as I've been thinking, because, you know, we've, a lot of the conversations we've been having, I, I guess, in our team and is often about the expression of worship. And uh, everyone expresses worship differently and stuff. And, and the more I was thinking about it, and particularly around this morning, I was like, you know what? It's not really my biggest concern as a pastor. It used to be a bit of my concern. And people often remember when I've said things about it. And I'm like, oh, it's great that that's not anything you remember that I said, that it looks a bit weird when you're up the front. And <laughs> people are like what's going on? So you're allowed to smile and enjoy being in church, all right? So let's get that out of the way. But, you know, the expression is one thing, and, and we can talk about that, and we can, you know, it's, it's probably a whole other sermon, but really for me this morning, it's, like, it's just about the heart. And if the heart's there, then the expression will come. And if the expression's there and the heart's not there, the expression is empty. It's pointless. Look throughout all the Old Testament and God continually has a go at these people because they go through the motions, but their heart's not there. And so that's what I want to really look at. And I guess the idea is that worship is not something we do. Worship is something that we direct. So you don't have to like switch on your worship. It's not something you do. It's something that you direct. The picture I had was like that of a river. Like you have a river of worship flowing from your life. Just you're born and it's on. It happens. It's more a matter of where does that river, where do you direct it? Do you direct it to God or does it get blocked off and start diverting to other things, whether it's your possessions, your career, the people around you, or whatever it is? Like it's not a matter of turning the river on or off when we come here on a Sunday morning or when we wake up on Monday, go to work. It's, it's more a matter of where's that river going to flow. And when you look at some of these verses, particularly in Jeremiah, we're probably going to focus heavily there um, in chapter 2. When you look at what God is sort of frustrated about and angry about is not that they lacked worship, but his issue is that they chose to worship other things. Look at verse 5 there. Um, what went wrong? Did your father, what wrong did your fathers find me that they went far from me and they went after worthlessness and became worthless? 
So it wasn't just that they had gone far from God, but it's also that they had chosen to go after other things, things that compared to God are worthless. Even verse 11, 12, 13, you know, God's just saying like, no other nation does this. No other nation leaves their gods even though they're sort of idols. No other nation changes, but he says, my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. You know, it sort of finds its echoes in Romans 1. If you remember that passage in Romans 1 where Paul says that, you know, people have exchanged the glory of God for, the, you know, the creator for the created, the truth of God we've exchanged for a lie. And then verse 13 is sort of like this grand summary of it, that my people have committed two evils in one act almost. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewed out systems for themselves. They've forsaken the living water, and instead they've dug their own sort of wells. And I think when you hear God's sort of frustration, it's that they've chosen to go after other things, that when you compare them to God, do not compare. Like we sung this morning, nothing compares to the promises that we have in God. Nothing compares to who He is. And yet, if you're anything like me, our river of worship continually goes to things other than God. And so what, is, what does that look like for us and how can we sort of, I guess, redirect the river again? That's what I want to look at this morning. And it's probably less of like, groundbreaking teaching this morning more so probably like a bit of a guided reflection if that's all right just want to lead us through some different questions get us thinking about our worship and hopefully i've been praying is that the holy spirit would just do his work of convicting us warning (laughs) there might be some conviction there might be some idols that we actually like need to replace and need to deal with but hopefully also that the Holy Spirit would not just convict us of sin, but he would also convict us of righteousness, that you'd show us the right way forward, show us more of Jesus, and that you know, we would sing for joy. We would find joy in worshiping God together. Is that all right? Are we on board for that? Good. Because I'm not changing my message. <laughs> worship. Worship is whatever captures your mind's attention Heart's affection, soul's ambition. This is the definition I've used for a long time. It's from guys at Worship Central in the UK. Um, And I just think it's really holistic, beautiful. It sort of captures that theme of Romans 12, you know, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Like this is your spiritual act of worship, your whole life. So worship is whatever captures your mind's attention, your heart's affection, your soul's ambition and uh this morning i just want to sort of break down those three areas and uh talk about that and as you go asking yourself what is capturing my mind's attention my heart's affection and your soul's ambition recognizing that you don't it's not a matter of switching on or off there's something capturing it and my prayer this morning is that that would be the one who is truly worthy of that place so mind's attention. Now, it doesn't take an expert to let us know that we are living in a very distracted age and we all have our minds divided amongst many things. Yeah, I mean, hands up if you've got a smartphone, one of these lovely, annoying little things. Um, 
I heard the other day, I think it was I think it was millennials, but it's probably true of like most people, but it said seventy percent seventy seven percent of millennials, when they don't know what to do, the first thing they reach for is their phone. So you're waiting in line for your coffee, you're standing there awkwardly, what do you do? Oh, phone. Finish dinner, sit on the couch, not sure what to do, what do you do? Reach for your phone. Or you're in a conversation that you're not quite interested in, what do you do? You reach for your phone. Maybe that's just the introverted people. How many of us does our phone dictate our mind's attention? Do you know you can turn it off? Like, have you, Does anyone actually turn their phone off? Like, I don't often. Oh. <laughs> does anyone here turn your phone off? <laughs> Some people have got it more sorted. I've, I've recently discovered do not disturb. That's the best thing ever. And you can like set it automatically. Oh, so good. So like 10 o'clock goes to do not disturb, doesn't come off till 8 a.m. next morning. I don't want my phone to dictate where my mind's attention goes. That's one thing. But we get distracted by so many other things. I mean, we live in this world of distraction. But, you know, the thing is, if I was to ask you what's capturing your mind's attention right now, I feel like for the most part, they would be good things. Family, work, maybe, um, I don't know, maybe you've got lunch on afterwards or you've got things happening. Yeah? I feel like for most of us, they're probably good things. They're not like evil things that you're sort of conjuring up in your mind thinking, oh, I can't wait to do that. Like, I feel like for most of the part, they're good things. But the problem, and, and it's sort of what, Jer- what, we, what, God alludes, what Jeremiah alludes to in, in verse 7, that the problem is that good things can often become gods in our lives. That we focus more on the gifts than the giver. We focus more on the kingdom than the king. And these good things begin to take the place of God at the highest priority. You know, verse 7, it says that like God brought us into this land. He's talking to the Israelites. Like, I brought you into this land to enjoy the fruit, to enjoy the good things. It's not, it's not a matter of like we can't enjoy them. But what place do they hold in our minds and in our hearts is really the big question. Because the thing is, they're meant to point us to God. You know, in James, it says every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights in heaven. Like everything, it comes from Him. It's meant to point us back to Him. And so, you know, you can go swimming out in the ocean and see all the turtles and stuff and go, oh, it's awesome. How cool is that turtle? Or it can point you back to God. And I think that's, I think, the place of the good things in our lives. That's the place of it. But on the flip side, I think we also get distracted a lot by, by bad things. We get overwhelmed by our struggles and our suffering. And, and, and it's not to downplay that. It's not saying that that's wrong. But I think once again, those things are actually meant to point us back to God. Do we just sit in our sort of despair? Or do we actually use those things to actually lead us back to God, knowing that He's close to the brokenhearted, knowing that He's near in every situation? And that's probably something you need to decide beforehand, you need to resolve beforehand that, you know what, no matter what I go through, I want God to be first and foremost. So what has been capturing your mind's attention? Yeah, how many of you have been driving? It's a bit scary. But how many of you have been driving and you're sort of listening to the music, you're having your thought time, just 
cruising along and then all of a sudden you come to and you go, I don't remember going through that set of lights. Has anyone done that? <laughs> I do that a little bit too often probably. Um, but, you know, you have this moment, you just go, was that green or red? Like, I don't quite remember. <laughs> and I think for me that was the picture I had of like sometimes my relationship with God and probably our relationships with God is that we can sort of be cruising along but not quite focused on where we're going. Like we're going through the motions, but our minds are sort of elsewhere. And I think that's so much the nature of our world that it sort of traps us into like not thinking, just going with the flow, just consuming this, accumulating that, achieving that, just going sort of after this rat race that we're all sort of in, but we never quite remember when we chose to be in it. And we're just caught up in this world and how much of us are we actually aware of what's capturing our minds Kevin DeYoung in his book Crazy Busy which is a really good short read if you're overwhelmed sometimes at life it says this how many of us growing too accustomed to the acedia of our age feel this strange mix of busyness and lifelessness We are always engaged with our thumbs, but rarely engaged with our thoughts. We keep downloading information, but rarely get down into the depths of our hearts. That's acedia. Purposelessness disguised as constant commotion. Do we ever stop enough to actually let our minds just still a bit and actually engage our thoughts in God, go a little bit deeper? You know, when Michael started sharing that story of the ocean, I thought you were going a different way with it. The first thought I had was like, that's, I think that's sometimes my journey of prayer, that like I get in the shallows and it's like all these waves are pushing me back and my thoughts are going out. So, and there's a point where I like actually got to like push really hard to get through that sort of, and then on the other side, it's like, oh, this beauty of like stillness and like peace. And next time you can use that. Um, but you know, I think sometimes like we actually need to like, work hard to actually still ourselves and actually like get past this distracted 10 seconds focus I'm so caught up in what's going on I actually need to sit long enough to get through that and the big reason why I think this is so important is because and this is true of each section I'm not going to repeat this all the time but I thought it's important to mention at the start is that what we worship is what we become our distractions are discipling us. Our smartphones are shaping us. Our world is shaping us. And like Paul says in Romans 12, we're either being transformed by the renewal of our mind or we're being conformed to the pattern of this world. Like those are the options given. There's nothing neutral. There's nothing that's just relaxing. I'm just chilling out. There's nothing just sweet and innocent. It's a bit scary. Because all of a sudden, everything has this purpose. Everything has this, well, what am I doing with my life? Which is, don't get too overwhelmed by that. But do we recognize that we're either being transformed by the renewal of our mind by Jesus or being conformed to the pattern of this world? Which is what Jeremiah says in verse 5. What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and they went after worthlessness? And what? and became worthless. Like Greg Beale says there, what people reveal 
what, what people revere, sorry, they resemble, either for ruin or restoration. And I liked it because it was good at alliteration, easy to remember. What people revere, what we hold highest, what we worship is what we become. And so when we're talking about worship, it's, not, it's, it's important because what we are worshiping is shaping us. Where is your mind's intention? And don't worry, it's not all like doom and gloom. There's hope. Because our response then is recognizing that if we can fix our minds upon Jesus, what could that do in our lives? That we can be transformed. There is change possible through His Spirit. We're called to remember God and to return to Him. I mean, look at verses 6 to 8, where Jeremiah, he writes the words of God saying, They did not say, where is the Lord who brought us out of the land of Egypt? And the priests did not say, where is the Lord? The implication is, this is what they should have been saying. They should have been saying to each other, where is the Lord? The one who brought us out of Egypt. Like, remember what he did. He brought us through the valleys. He brought us through the pits. He brought us through these places. He brought us to this land to enjoy its gifts. Like, where is the Lord? Remember, remember. Let's search for him. Let's seek for him. Knowing that God promises to be found when we seek Him, when we search Him out. And sometimes it is a bit of a search. And that's, I know, I just think that's one of the beautiful things about God. That God is like simple enough that a child can know Him. But He's complex enough that you can go on a lifetime adventure of discovering more. unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. But this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. There's this link, once again, between beholding God and being transformed into His image. And that word behold means to take note, to observe, to think about, to meditate upon, to wonder go through our lives eager to behold God, ready to observe Him, ready to like think about Him as we pray, as we read His Word, as we go through creation, as we talk to people. He's beholding God in a sense of wonder. Like, it's that part of our everyday experience. Like Paul says, like we're called to set our minds on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on the things of earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. I love that language of like, set your mind. Like, I feel like it's intentional. It's a choice that, you know what, I'm going to wake up today, I'm going to set my mind on the things that are above, not on the things of earth, because I believe that Christ will satisfy far above 
what this earth can offer. And I think that's what we do here as we gather together. That's what I felt like has happened with me this morning. <laughs> My mind's attention has been a lot of different places this week. And then to come here and just be reminded again that actually give thanks to the Lord, like our, forever our God is faithful, forever he's strong. It's magnificent, wonderful, and it's just reminding, oh, yeah, this is. And so, like Mark says, 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 our age is rigged to steal our time. However, in worship, and I think in that he means in corporate worship, we recapture time, offering it to God as a sacrifice, resetting our life clocks to the eternal setting. So that's my prayer for this morning, that we would sort of reset our life clocks to this eternal setting set our minds on the things that are above you know ask yourself this morning where is your mind's attention what is capturing your mind's attention and probably further than that you need to ask why and what's underlying that where's your heart at this morning right, mind's attention that's a long one to see how good you were with your mind's attention you still with me good all right Heart's affection, soul's ambition. Let's look at the heart. My favorite. Um, that was a bit of a joke. <laughs> I, had to, I had to work hard on this. This is the hardest one for me to write because I'm like, uh, emotions, heart, what are they? Um, anyway, someone asked me this week, like, what do you love? And I was like, uh, sport. Actually, no, I don't really. Like, sport's kind of cool, but uh, I don't know. Maybe music. Oh, but then there's times I do music. I'm like, uh I was like, I really struggled to answer. So bad. And like, I didn't want to do the cliche, like, pastor thing. Oh, Jesus, yeah, I love him. He's so, um, I do, I do love Jesus, don't you? <laughs> wow. Um, I think the way I was thinking about it, like, what do you value is really the question. What do you value in your heart and in your life? And you can get pretty pragmatic with this. Have a look at your time, your money. Have a look at your calendar. Have a look at the things that you talk about, how you talk about them. Do you get more excited when you're talking about food than you do about cars? Yes, I do. Um, you can sort of start to see where your values are at, where your heart's affection goes. What begins to cause an emotional response in you, for good or bad? What do you get angry about? What do you uh, get teary about? What, what are the things that your heart is drawn towards? And some of the questions you can ask this week. Because I think the reality is, if uh, someone came from another planet and watched your life for two weeks, every moment, they would be able to tell you what you value. They would be able to tell you what captures your heart's affection. hard to hide what you love. If someone loves food, it's all over their Instagram. If someone loves sport, you can tell. You can probably know where I'm going with this, but like, is it obvious to people around us that we love Jesus? That he's the one shaping our lives and values? That was like a tough question for me to think about. Like if someone watched my life for two weeks, would they say that I love Jesus? 
Or would they say that I've got a lot of great friends in my church community that I enjoy spending time with? Or would they say that I enjoy being a part of community work, enjoy giving back? Or would they say that, you know, I enjoy the mission or the excitement of preaching? Or Do you know? Would they say those things or would they say actually you know what this guy loves Jesus and it's clear because he does this it's an interesting way to think and it's obviously a heart thing because like we said before you can do all these things and your heart can be not in it or you can do all these things and it's clear that actually you know what I can tell that this is them loving Jesus you can tell do you know like Jesus points out this story with generosity where a woman gives two coins and this other guy the Pharisee gives much more and on the outside it would look like this guy is given way better but Jesus says no like this lady is given out of her need not out of her abundance out of her lack there's a different heart there's a different spirit you can and so I think and you can tell. You can tell when someone is generous towards you and when they're just giving out of their abundance. The heart is different. And I think the exact same when it comes to following Jesus. We can do all the right things. We can do all the right stuff. But you can tell when your heart is in it or not. You can feel it. The people around you can feel it. just had this thought of like what if Jesus was the one we got most passionate about like I get pretty passionate at my Melbourne City game and at some time it is very frustrating because they're not very good they've been disappointing for a long time now they're top of the ladder I might just sneak that in um, but what if what if Jesus was the one that was most passionate about what if you know our emotional responses were like biggest around Jesus like the things that he got angry about, those are the things that we actually got really angry about, not the other things that we get angry about. What if the things that he was compassionate about were the things that we compassionate about? Because when you look through the Bible, like Jesus is so serious about being the number one in our lives. Just look through the Gospels and look at the way Jesus interacts with the people and he's super serious, not about being third in line says to the rich young ruler who's not willing to give up, he says, it's fine, walk away. He challenges people. Like, leave your fields, leave your families, like, let the dead bury their own dead. Like, it comes across super harsh because maybe it hits against our own lives a bit. But he's super serious about being number one. You know, I did a little word search on the um, Bible app on the word wholeheartedly. I'd encourage you to do it this week. What does it look like to follow Jesus wholeheartedly? And just look through the Old Testament references. I think we had some up there. It talks about Joshua and Caleb who followed the Lord wholeheartedly. They were the only two in their entire generation that still had faith that God is who he was and he could do something miraculous in the face of these giant cities. Solomon, 
Oh, he had a lot of wives. Wasn't the greatest idea. And they turned his heart. And he had not been fully devoted or he hadn't been wholehearted to the Lord as his heart, as David had been. For me, that one of the saddest verses I read was Amaziah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but not wholeheartedly. And I was like, oof, is that me? Doing the right things, but not wholehearted in my devotion to God. And here's the thing. When we're talking about heart's affection, it's not about being crazy expressive and out there and all emotional and in tears and stuff. Like, I'm not like that often. What it's about is valuing Jesus far and above everything else in our lives, trusting him, obeying him, letting him be the one that that rules and reigns of our lives and letting nothing else sway that. Being wholehearted in our devotion. It's what has captured your heart's affection. Lastly, soul's ambition. You know, I read I read this book. Um, Bill Bill gave me a copy of this book, which I smashed out in a week. It was just captured something in my heart. But it's called Rumors of God: um, How to Sort of Experience This Life. And they talk about these rumors of God and what it looks like for that to become reality. You know, you hear these stories of incredible things happening around the world, and you go, "What does it look like for that to be reality?" And 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 they go on this journey, and I thought I'll just sort of take a lot from that and twist it a bit but you know what if i asked you about your future or your dreams asked you what do you want in five years time or 10 years time you know if your mind is left to wonder dreaming about the future where, where does it go what do you think about what scenarios do you imagine you know what would you ask god for you know if he was the cosmic genie that disney depicts him as you know what would be your, your three wishes maybe Maybe some more money. Maybe you would ask for financial stability or, you know, a, com- a comfortable living environment. Nothing, nothing super fancy, just a nice, comfortable place to live. Maybe a better career or work environment. Maybe you want better friends, people who are, like, fun and supportive. But they're also stable and... But they're spontaneous and... But they're deep and wise. Maybe, I don't know, something like that. Maybe you'd change your appearance or your physical ailments. Maybe a life partner. Maybe kids, maybe kid, if you've got kids, maybe kids that are sort of well-educated, high-functioning, successful, well-mannered, little wonderful people. Maybe you want to be famous, influencing people for all the right reasons and all this stuff. Like, when you really think about like, what, what would it be that you would want, that you desire in life, heading into the future? And, and the scary thing is, I think, when, and I was reading this book, they talked about that, and as I thought about my own life, I was like, oh, yeah, is that... When you got past the right answers, like right answers, I think my heart's desires, what I was actually longing for, was very similar to what probably non-Christians in the world would be longing for. Like, is there any marked difference in what we long for? It's a bit of a scary thought, and it sort of threw me out a bit this week, but... Because the thing is, when we, when we actually long for something, 
more than we long for God, what we're actually saying is that if I get that, I'll be happy. I'll be satisfied. And what we're doing is putting our faith in those things rather than faith in God. Like if I get my life partner, bang, life will be fantastic. And what I do is I put my faith in that circumstance or situation rather than putting my faith in Jesus. When I long for that more than I am longing for God. And what we begin to do is, like Jeremiah says, we begin to replace the living water with these broken cisterns. These things that can leak, these things that are temporary, these things that don't satisfy. And do we long for God? Do we desire that living water that it talks about? Are our souls directed towards Jesus? You know, I think C.S. Lewis, I had to get a C.S. Lewis quote in there for my youth, uh, who apparently reckon I quote C.S. Lewis too much. They don't understand how great Clive Staples Lewis is. We are like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And I was like, is that, is that me? Is that my soul's ambition that I just want these sort of mud pies when actually there's a God who offers living water? What if there's so much more that God has in store for us, but we've forgotten to ask, where is the Lord? We have stopped searching and we've stopped seeking and we have gone after the worthless that does not profit and we're missing out on the living water that Jesus offers. And maybe for some of us, we've actually stopped longing after God because we've been let down. Maybe you've been disappointed and you wanted that and it sort of didn't quite happen how you thought it might. God just wants to remind us this morning that he's the one in control. He's the one that has so much more in store. And while evil still abounds, God urges us to remember, to return to him, to hold on, to still be expectant, to still long after him and all that he offers. Because that's the nature of faith. Even when we don't see it, being certain of what we hope for, being assured of what we cannot see. So may our lives be directed solely to God, longing after Him. You know, and there's this story in John 4 where Jesus comes to the well, meets a Samaritan woman in the middle of the day, and we find out that this woman has sort of experienced some broken cisterns, some wells that haven't quite worked out. She's gone from relationship to relationship to relationship, and she's ended up by herself, outcast in a society, sitting at the well by herself. And Jesus comes and he's not supposed to talk to her because Jews and Samaritans don't mix. And yet he sort of asks her for a drink. You all probably know the story. I encourage you to read it this week. And this woman's a bit confused and she sort of gets him a drink. But Jesus just looks at her and is like, if you knew what was going on, you would ask me for a drink. Which is an extremely cryptic statement from Jesus. And this woman is a bit 
what's going on. And she begins to realize that actually there's something different going on here. And look what Jesus says to her. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus says, you've been searching and you've been longing, you've been wanting something and I'm telling you, like, this is it. It is me. I am the living water. I am the one that satisfies, who gives life eternal. And as they talk, they get more into it and they end up talking about worship. And they end up, and this woman ends up believing in Jesus going into her town, spreading the good news, and it says many believed in her testimony because she found the living water. She found something that satisfies all of her longings, and it changed everything. May we not keep going back to the broken systems. May we long after Jesus, the one who satisfies He's the one who gives life, who gives meaning, purpose, direction, the solid rock, all other ground, sinking sand. So we would build our lives on him. And, and the beautiful thing is, is like a couple chapters later, Jesus is at this feast, and once again he uses similar language, and he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. Like, that for me is like the picture of life, that we find Jesus, the living water. And as we believe in him, he actually then uses us as a channel for that living water to flow into the world around us. I just go, that is a life worth living. That is a life worth living. Going after all that he has and knowing that he satisfies, knowing that he is great, but then having that flow through us to the world around us that is desperately thirsty for meaning and for purpose. So what is capturing your mind's attention and your heart's affection and your soul's ambition? here's the thing God is not asking God doesn't require perfection I think that can be the hard thing we hear this and we go oh man my life is so far from that I am not worthy I'm guilty like, that's, hopefully that's not what we take from here because God is more concerned about the direction that your life is heading is it heading towards God or is it heading away from God? And if it's heading away, then yes, we're called to repent. We're called to change our minds and to change our thinking and to turn around back to Him, you know, deciding that, you know what, temporary things aren't going to satisfy. I'm going to believe in what Jesus said. You know, there's a changing of your mind in repentance. Maybe we need to go on that journey. Maybe there's some idols that need to get out of the way. In the end... Psalm 51 where it says the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Sometimes I just think that's what God wants. He just wants people to go, you know what, I can't do this. I'm not doing this. So help me. You're the one that's going to fix it. You're the one that's going to save. You're the one that's going to be the Lord of my life. 
and lead me where I need to go. I really believe that Jesus is worth worshipping. That he leads to life in all of its fullness. And my prayer is this morning that our hearts will come back to that place of just going, you know what? He is worthy of every single thing. My mind's attention, my heart's affection, my soul's ambition. And so I'm going to invite the team up and we're going to sing this song, Heart of Worship. Once again, no surprise. But the words of the song, when the music fades and all is stripped away and you simply come before God, He doesn't hear the songs. He doesn't hear what's going on. He looks directly into your heart. What does he see? Is it all about Jesus? That's the simple but big question for all of us. Because that's what's important in the light of eternity. Is it, is it all about Jesus? I want to encourage you this morning as we sing this, as we pray this, <laughs> that we'll just say, you know what, I'm coming back. Like for me, I know I need to come back. There's different things that have been capturing me. And every Sunday is almost like this resetting of my life clock. And maybe it's even every day I need to be doing that. of Just resetting and going, you know what, I'm coming back. So I want to encourage you this morning as we sing this, um, I don't know, express it how you need to express. If you need to sit down and pray, if you need to kneel down and sort of repent, if you need to like, jump around and go crazy and coming back you do that (laughs) but may we come back to the heart of worship this morning